Well, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. And I'm with an, an old friend, Frank Fraser, who goes under the writing name, pseudonym of Gary Roden. Actually, it's really Gary Roden. And we're at Murdoch University. Gary's very kindly agreed to join the podcast, even though he's just back from big travels. Uh, what have you been up to? Where have you been? And what did you do? Spent two weeks in Manila and then a few days in Singapore. Uh-huh. And this is all part of a research project on. Uh, initi- initiatives in political representation in the last 20 years in Southeast Asia. I'm looking at non-democratic as well as democratic initiatives. Uh-huh. The former often get overlooked and dismissed, whereas I'm starting from the proposition that whether you like these or not, it's important to study whether or not they're getting any political traction, whether there are constituencies for non-democratic forms of political representation. Could you say a bit more about that, about what non-democratic forms are? Because they could be, arguably, churches or terrorists. Hmm. The underlying uh, definition of democratic representation is that it carries the political authority of those that are being represented. There have to be mechanisms in place for those people to authorise others to speak on their behalf and then to have the ability to discipline them, so to speak, hold them accountable in some way if they're not happy with the way in which they're uh, purportedly representing their interests. The the mechanism we're usually familiar with is the election. So you turf someone out, you know, three years down the track or whatever it might be if you're not happy that they have done justice to what they are purporting to do in your name. But there are informal mechanisms too. In between elections, obviously, it's very important to have ways of people being able to communicate with you. Um, these days you can do it. Thank you very much. You can do this electronically. Mm-hmm. Non-democratic forms of representation often cohabit with democratic forms mm-hmm. of representation in liberal democracies. And they're not all necessarily bad, but we uh, need to be clear about the difference in political authority that is attached to the, these different forms. So that, that could be what civil society, third sector, NGOs? can be, because uh, let's say a government wants to have an inquiry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will appoint people to be involved in that inquiry. They may have privileged access to policy makers. Of course, often it may look like it's privileged, but the impact might be minimal. Nonetheless, they are often selected on the under the pretext of representing different constituencies or in the language, neoliberal language of today, stakeholders, Mm. which of course from a political philosophy point of view is not necessarily the same as a citizen. Uh, A distinction that has been seamlessly um, alluded in the uh, current debates about political participation. Yeah, right, right, precisely. I mean, having lived so long in the United States, the sort of land of the fetish of the third sector and the idea that this is magically more in tune with what real people really want than the political process, I I am both sceptical of this and sometimes appreciative of it because it can, perhaps not in the US case, but in the case of places that have strong states that are inimical to democratic interests, it's another game in town. For a lot of Latin Americans, the civil society fetish is very welcome after decades of right-wing madness orchestrated from the United States without a strong civil society. And for many people in Eastern and Central Europe, the same. Yeah, well, civil society can, you know, has varying normative um, components to it. And 
there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about civil society. And the point that you seem to be making is that uh, there are particular forms of civil society and civil society participation that are almost reified these days mm. as, as uh, epitomising what is good about civil society. And in many cases, these sorts of organisations and actors do advance progressive politics. But the question that has to be asked is, do they constitute genuinely representative organisational mm. uh, bodies or, or movements? And in a lot of cases, in the area where I'm familiar, in Southeast Asia, they, they frankly don't. They're an alternative to organisations, to mass organisations. Uh, the most obvious one is the, in Labor, where trade unions, independent trade unions, were largely massacred during the Cold War, or obliterated, sorry, um, and they've found it very difficult to recover even after authoritarian regimes have fallen mm. because we live in a global world now where even in established liberal democracies it's not so easy for trade unions to um, be as effective as they once were uh, because of the mobility of capital and a whole lot of other regulations that have been removed which make the uh, effectiveness of some of their tactics to protect their members' interests not quite so um, <coughs> so watertight as once they were. Right. And, uh, and so you do get a lot of advocacy groups rather than representative groups standing up for the poor and the downtrodden and, and the workers and the peasants and so on, uh, whose work is admirable at one level, but on the other hand they lack the force of genuine mobilisation because they're not organisationally strong. And they often are very dependent for their activities on international aid organisations, few of whom have any serious commitment to, to large-scale political reform, and many of whom can't have that anyway because the terms and conditions under which they operate in these countries and, and, and award money for projects makes it very difficult for them to explicitly involve themselves in such um, such alignments. How far along are you in the research? In my head, a bit further than on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> in my case, it's all the other way around, so I applaud this. Yeah. <laughs> the danger, of course, is um, you overthink it when you write, and um, so I think your method has a lot to recommend it. <laughs> Well, I've, uh, I guess I'm about halfway through the writing, maybe a little bit less than that, but I hope to come home in the next year to finish the, the whole book that I'm working on, mm. and I think that's, that's possible. Uh, I've written quite a few articles and book chapters along the way. Uh, these are ways of getting into the topic and doing some empirical work, and, uh, but yeah, I think Overall, it's at best halfway through, but with a lot of it coming together in the next year. So a lot's already been done. Tell us to the extent that you can, without wanting to, in a sense, blow the story too early, what your take is so far on places that you've worked on before and places that are a bit newer to you. So Singapore versus the Philippines, mm -hmm. Malaysia, these sorts of regions. Well, this project is deliberately comparative and it's deliberately comparative across authoritarian and new democratic regimes. So, for example, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines, different sorts of slightly different sorts of authoritarian regimes, 
and the oldest um, post-authoritarian democracy in Southeast Asia. And the, you know, the core or the thematic argument really comes down to the, the way in which politics has been fragmented by the legacy of various historical processes, particularly the decimation of strong civil society groups through the Cold War, uh, but the way in which institutions of representation thereafter have often paradoxically increased the scope for political participation but decreased the scope for political contestation. Hmm. Many of the institutions, whether they be in democratic or non-democratic regimes, have um, involved a lot of so colour and movement, a lot of opportunity to participate, but the, the terms and conditions of that participation often structure certain forms of conflict out of the debate. So, for example, uh, participatory budgeting in some mm -hmm. places mm -hmm. does enable people to come villages and communities that are often historically marginalised from the political process to have some involvement in selection of projects. But they don't get to debate big issues about land reform and and uh, pollution of rivers and things that affect their livelihoods. The, these are still a domain for traditional politics and formal politics, which for a whole host of reasons is very hard for poorly organised uh, peasants and workers to be strongly involved in mm. because of those legacies. The other fact, the other thing that I'm very interested in is the role of ideology in this, which has been largely downplayed or ignored, and, and people often make the mistake of thinking that the end of the Cold War was the end of ideology, you know, the argument that had some traction about 10 years ago in North American political science in particular. And there's a mistake here in, in assuming that ideologies are always simply liberal, democratic, and, mm. and the traditional ones. Mm -hmm. There are lots of hybrid regimes and lots of uh, hybrid uh, ideologies, sorry. And there are also tactical uses of ideology mm -hmm. which have been mm -hmm. underestimated. So, for example, on issues of accountability and representation, you get lots of authoritarian governments and lots of non-democratic but maybe liberal actors in politics who embrace this idea and, and present some of their initiatives in political participation as, in, as signifying or being imbued with uh, you know, some sort of ideology of um, uh, community involvement mm. or um, uh, advancing the rights of people to be involved in participation. Whereas um, they may be disingenuous about this, mm. but it nevertheless, ideology needs to be studied for the political impact it has and the political effect it has, not how genuine uh, the actors who are using those ideologies may be mm -hmm. in uh, introducing them into the struggles over politics. Mm. Mm. And so uh, it's therefore uh, not to be dismissed that in Cambodia or in Singapore, 
uh, there's talk of accountability and the need for politics to be accountable or for there to be representation. Mm. Uh, but how people are represented and on what principles and, and bases is when you start to distinguish between democratic and non-democratic varieties of representation. So ideology can be tactical and, and very important, even if people aren't genuine about it. So do you have any good news stories that you'd point to in any of the countries that you're examining of either democratic political participation or non-democratic political participation? I mean, are there, I don't know, anything from church groups to dance theatre groups with political points to make that have grassroots connections and manage to articulate them to yeah, policy makers think, and so on? I can just sweep across a, a couple of countries, sure, for example. Sure. Some of the ideologies that have been important in, in uh, countering democratic ideologies include what I call localist ideologies. These are ideologies that might be to do with ethnicity or religion, uh, they could be some variant of republicanism, which is what I argue in the case of the Singaporean government. Um, and these are ways of, in, of encouraging representation based on an identity which is very discreet. Mm -hmm. Now, ethnicity has been an extremely powerful one, not just in Malaysia, but right across the region, really. If you look at Malaysia today, uh, some of the transformations because of the successful capitalist development in that society has meant that there's increased urbanisation. Right. And amongst the urbanised, you see a quite dramatic reduction in the political power of ethnicity as an ideology on people in their voting practices and in their organisational practices. So you see the emergence of parties like Kadilan, which started out originally as a breakaway ethnic Malay party when there was that big kerfuffle mm. with Mahathir and Anwar. But nowadays it's it's a more multi-ethnic party. Has Chinese activists? Yes, it does have, and it's put up some Chinese candidates in the previous elections. And th this is a very... Uh, there is There are stronger coalitions across, across what were hitherto primarily ethnic organised political parties and ethnic organised uh, NGOs and civil society organisations. I, I would not... Don't, don't read from this that ethnicity is finished and, and no longer a powerful force, but it's not the force that it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. And there are emerging coalitions, particularly in the bigger cities in Malaysia, where multi-ethnic and in a, in a sense, non-ethnic politics is starting to take greater hold. Now, that's got a long way to go. But what it shows is that the power of the long-standing ethnic ideology, which has been used to uh, counter aspirations or to preempt aspirations for democratic ideologies, doesn't have the same traction that it once did. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean the imminent demise of that regime. And those sort of ideologies, the less effective they become, might mean that more repressive measures are necessary to maintain that regime. But that's a dynamic struggle. And uh, it's and the state of play is different now from what it was 10 years ago, unquestionably. In the last election in Malaysia, uh, the, the ruling coalition got less than 50% of the vote. 
more than 50% didn't want the government. And so, you know, part of that is explained, not all of it, part of it is explained by those sort of dynamics. There are lots of people who want the government changed who don't necessarily have an undifferentiated embrace of democratic ideology, but that's another matter. If you look in Singapore, which is the most stable non-democratic regime in the region and where the government still has 60% of the vote, it has lost quite a significant portion of the vote over the last two elections, and yet it also has the most sophisticated and most extensive network of co-optation mechanisms possibly anywhere in the world. Um, because a bit easier when you're in a pretty small city-state island yeah. than in some other That's places, right. but still. Yes, there are logistical still, advantages, no question. Murdoch University is smaller than Singapore, just about, and yeah. no one's managed it here. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I think we should send Professor Higgett over there to take a closer look. <laughs> You know, the, and you can't make a comparison between the state of civil society in Singapore and Malaysia and say that they're on par because they're not. Civil society is very incipient, mm. partly for the reasons you, you mentioned. Uh, and there always was in Malaysia uh, a greater space between uh, the government and some of the uh, authorities that allowed you know, cracks in the system which periodically, particularly in times of crisis, we see some fairly courageous and, and uh, effective NGOs at least and, mm -hmm. and opposition political parties exert an impact. Singapore hasn't been like that. But you know, at the last election, we got a 60-40 break, which is you know, quite... Uh, the last two elections has been a declining vote. So what this does suggest is that, and you can draw a parallel with Malaysia in this degree, that these are societies in which there has been great upward social mobility. That being one of the great strengths of these models politically has been that they've carried many people with them in terms mm -hmm. of improved living mm -hmm. standards mm -hmm. and improved horizons, you know, their prospects of improvement materially and, and socially uh, in a whole lot of respects were, uh, were such that there were good reasons from some people's point of view to support these mm -hmm. governments, even mm -hmm. if they weren't. Uh, run by democratic political parties. But once the, uh, these sort of economies and societies have been marked by quite dramatic increases in inequality and rising costs of living, then they get held to account by their own criteria. And if they're not delivering in these respects, then the trade-off, if you like, of political repression uh, doesn't seem to have any any return for it. So they are having, in, in Singapore, you know, there is more criticism, there is more scepticism about some of the founding ideological myths, such as this place is a meritocracy. Uh, this place distributes goods uh, equitably without Western uh, welfareism, which has often been disparaged. Um, and a number of other myths which didn't look worth questioning from a lot of people's point of view when everyone was experiencing you know, improved living standards and, and it was a relatively egalitarian society, at least in a material sense. But now social stratification is starting to solidify and uh, inequality is quite substantial. And so the there have been more... Uh, more yeah. protest actions, 
not on the same scale as you get in Malaysia, but a, a little bit more evidence that there are rumblings there in, in an incipient civil society, and the voting trends tend to suggest that too. Now, Gary, we met getting on for 28 years ago, I suddenly realised when, we, when we were chatting, and the big event that year that engaged a lot of us was the end of the Marcos regime in the Philippines. I'm wondering, since you're just back from Manila, how these things are playing out there in a society, if you can call it a society, that is really infinitely more complex than these others, just in terms of the fact that we're talking about thousands of islands, yep. many ethnicities, lots of languages, massive religious disputes, and, if anything, more complex colonial history. Mm. Yes, uh, which makes it... Uh, In 10 uh, seconds or less, starting <laughs> now. A brave person to venture into the Philippines <laughs> at this stage of their career. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think you can command the big bucks anymore. One of the knees is a little dodgy. This is what we can get you, son, mm. all right? Yeah, look, I'm a, um, I'm a burst player now, and, and I've burst into the Philippines. We're going to inject you into the back line. No, I, I still want to have a, have a shot at goals from time to time. Well, every now and then we'll put you in the pocket and see what you can come okay. up with. Well, this is what I've come up with. Uh, the Philippines, <laughs> Philippines has, uh, in many ways, not resolved many of the issues that were being debated at the time Marcos was overthrown. At the time Marcos was overthrown, there was a, immediately, immediately after that, there was you know, a constitutional commission which was supposed to look at political reforms and lots of other reforms to address a whole lot of problems that pre predated Marcos, in fact. You know, acute concentration of wealth and power, uh, a, a, polit a political system that was dominated by the by oligarchs, and, and uh, you know, some of those oligarchs had their noses out of joint during the Marcos era because he had other cronies who he thought um, were more uh, useful for him to benefit from government decisions. So, you know, that's been playing out and essentially, what, you know, the big, I mean, one of the big issues that I'm looking at in my work, obviously, on political representation is the extent to which initiatives in political representation, whether they be formal or, or non-formal by that, I mean, whether they be congressional, stroke parliamentary or uh, civil society initiatives. And, you know, unfortunately, this is probably the quintessential example of how political fragmentation amongst all the different groups that are non-elite have has been reinforced in the period since Marcos rather than overcome. And in fact, one of the case studies that I'm undertaking for this book is about the party list system, which was a sort of compromise. Uh, a lot of other things that people wanted, progressive people wanted, to change were things like domination by political dynasties. So there was an anti-dynasty law which was debated but you know, and put into the constitution, but it's never been like so many other things that are in the 1987 constitution. They require an enactment through parliament to implement them, and these implementing laws have usually not happened. And the anti-dynasty law is one of those. So you know you've got a lot of corruption and periodic public backlashes against that, a huge one at the moment because in the middle of last year there was this exposure from whistleblowers of uh, the so-called pork barrel scam which involved siphoning off, alleged siphoning off of money by politicians through a uh, business person 
using bogus NGOs under the pretext that this pork barrel, which is supposed to be priority development fund money for constituents mm -hmm. used by Congress people, was actually you know, being siphoned off for personal accounts and personal uses. So, uh, but you, you know, the left is very divided in the Philippines. They spend just as much time arguing with each other, fighting with each other, and distinguishing themselves from each other now as they did way back then. Um, and the dominance of NGOs has proliferated, mm -hmm. often inadvertently fueled by international aid. In a lot of cases, meaning you know very well-meaning international aid to try and address serious problems, and trying to put money behind whatever groups could try and address these. But it's it's tended to compartmentalise a lot of political activity, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and then, of course, as you say, you know, there are these many islands and disputes, and one of which, you know, the long-standing problem of the Moro group was signed off on last week in a peace deal. Oh, was it? I didn't yes, know that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, in fact, I, uh, I was just walking past a hotel and saw uh, Najib Razak, who has been involved in that peace, peace process, who was there to sign the deal. So I think he needed a bit of a break given all the anxieties he's had with the Malaysian Airlines dispute in the last week. He did look a bit tired. Right. right. So, you know, there are, things move on. It's not as if there's no progress. I mean, Aquino, as the president, he's part of the political dynasty, of course, but he's trying to institute some reforms to improve the integrity of public institutions. Uh, you know, that may not be enough to solve the systemic problems. Well, uh, these oligarchies cir do circulate, don't they? And some of the getting rid of Marcos was about the oligarchs falling out with him who felt as though their power had been diminished, hmm. just as you indicate. Well, it was a turning point in the movement. You know, it wasn't just the democratic and progressive yeah. forces. Yeah, it's not just populism. And I think that's one of the things that people forget when it comes to all these countries some Paratian ideas about circulations of elites are actually right. And you do need oligarchs to change their minds. You've got it in the case of the USSR. Uh, you've clearly got it in the Philippines. I mean, I think the big question in the Philippines is that what you have with Aquino is, and the people around him, who uh, include business people, um, who are some of whom are aligned with the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party is an old traditional party, but it does have a reformist wing to it. But the reformist wing is really characterised by people whom you possibly describe as as a cosmopolitan bourgeoisie who are looking for a more regularised and objective set of um, uh, governance processes, so rule of law and less corruption, because to do business in the way that they want to do it, uh, these things are important. Whereas if you're solely reliant upon corruption for making your your money and that's your you know core to your business model then you want to hang on to it but so i do think that the, and no one's done any detailed work on this i'm quite surprised uh, because i thought it would that would greatly help some of my work uh, to be able to draw on on that because you like to do proxy research where others do all the hard yeah no, right. you just come in at the end and it's you know crumbs from the imperial table right. that you turn into bread yeah 
like when that. it stacks on the mill, you're the mosquito I'm, I'm, fleet. I'm doing the I'm doing the down under hard work at the bottom of the pack, <laughs> interviewing and uh, analysing these institutions of representation. But in the time I have for this project, and although the ARC has been very generous, it doesn't extend to a full analysis of uh, the capitalist system in in the Philippines. And uh, people did a lot of this very good work in years gone by. But I do think that. There are new fractions of the, the bourgeoisie that need to detail uh, discrete study, and that's my point. Yeah. Gary, I, we're over halfway through. I had two more questions for you that I'm hoping you might be prepared to kind of answer. Um, one is to take us back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, when a fly ball's been hit into left or right field. Guy's running back, he's got the glove open, and as we know, once the glove touches the ball, that should be it. Um, for people who might want to look at some of your earlier work and get a sense of where they should start, we've mentioned Singapore a couple of times, and I think your first book is about Singapore. Could you take us back and take us through some of the fields in which people could locate your output? Well, the theme to all my work is political economy. The emphasis has changed a bit, but the early work I did... The early rodent. Yes, the, the early work, my under, my primary school essays. <laughs> Which have been collected, by the way, and can be sold, can be bought at a very, very reasonable discount price, and have been handed in many times successfully as Asian Studies essays at Murdoch University. Yeah, and you get a cap with it all this week if you're very quick. <laughs> yeah, my, my first, my you know, the PhD that I did was looking at the political economy of industrialization in the Philippines, and ultimately it was refined and published as a book by Macmillan, called that political economy of, industrial, of Singapore's industrialization. And at that time, the big debate that I was interested in was, was around how do you explain the rapid industrialization of the newly industrializing countries in East Asia, but it was a larger debate than that. And the core to the debate was over the, the relative role of the state versus the market. And uh, my book contributed to debate that essentially said this was a there was a political foundation to this success in Singapore as there is in most places, and there, it was not a free market by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, to me, a free market is it just doesn't exist because uh, even if you look at say what Thatcher did in Britain, it's just simply using different apparatuses of the state to order an economy in a particular way by, in her case, you know, using police and others to prevent strikes or to, to introduce laws to give new powers to authorities mm -hmm. to regulate industrial relations. Uh, I mean, if you say that the, a market involves the uh, free uh, movement of capital, labour and Well, capital and labour anyway. In this, Technology. In, in this case, uh, you know, labour is not free. So you regulate to uh, influence whether or not the price of labour can, can reach its market price. And much of the, many of the supporters of free, so, you know, ideological supporters of free market economics often overlook that you know, the freedom of labour to organise um, is often circumscribed in the places that they put up as examples of what can be achieved by free market. And Singapore was an obvious, to me, an obvious example. So, but in the process of doing that work and buying into that debate, I came out of it at the other end much more interested in the domestic 
politics and the interface between domestic politics and globalisation. And so I spent some time looking at the dynamics of the Singapore economy and the changing orientation of it from just industrialisation to post-industrialisation of service aspects and so on, uh, and the politics involved in that. So, but I was not alone in some of these interests. I worked with uh, Richard Robeson and Kevin Hewison in particular, and we did a series of edited volumes where we brought in colleagues from Murdoch and around the world who had similar, uh, shared this approach, uh, in which we looked at the conflicts that were generated by the process of capitalist development and the alliances and conflicts that are part of the very dynamics of, of these economies in Southeast Asia. So the political economy of Southeast Asia, we did you know, three volumes of that. That was Kevin, Dick and myself and you know, I had a lot of colleagues who either came through Murdoch or were attracted to what we were doing at Murdoch and we formed uh, decade-long uh, collaborations with and many of those are in North America and South, East and Southeast Asia and UK and so on. So that, that work, if you just look up the political economy of Southeast Asia, you'll see not just my work, but many other people who've done you know, outstanding work in this field. Not as good as yours, but okay. Um, they're getting there. They're getting, they're there. getting there. They're quick learners. So that's good. And my next question is, my last question really, I wanted to ask you about political economy because you were saying that that's been your touchstone throughout, but it's been through some changes, and mm -hmm. I guess that was partly about being interested in the domestic political reaction to globalization. One of the charges that I experience when it's made in the communications and cultural spheres is that political economy is too negative, too pessimistic and it's prone to left functionalism. In other words, that it fails to be, in fact, a conflict-based theory for all its origins in a form of Marxism because ownership and control and the state matter more than anything and dominate. So I just wondered if you could comment on that and then we might maybe branch off into one or two other things before we conclude. Yep. <clears throat> Well, one of the things that I, where I've spent probably the last 10 years trying to um, extend on the foundations of political economy is to take a more, involve more examination of the ideologies that are integral to these struggles and conflicts. And, you know, Gramsci was so insightful in this when he made the observation that in the only places where there had been revolutions, were in places that didn't meet the preconditions that Marx talked about. These were agrarian and feudal societies in Russia and Marx and uh, China. And, um, and so the places that seemed to be ripe, according to Marx's analysis, because of the structural conditions, were places where uh, the idea... Um, it's not, not to say that there, wasn't, there weren't moments in Britain and elsewhere where Marxism was a very powerful force, but the ability ideologically of uh, those societies to remain capitalist and to divert uh, pressures for socialist change or revolution needed explanation. 
and these obviously, you know, the ideological factors were obviously quite underestimated pre-Gramsci in trying to understand and explain why capitalism might take one particular regime path or another. Mm. Of course, you go back to Barrington Moore, and he was extremely uh, important in laying down the foundations for a structuralist analysis of these larger questions. But in the last 10 years, I've been uh, looking more closely at institutions because a lot of the debates in the fields that I work in have been preoccupied with institutions and a lot of North American political science literature in particular saying institutions matter. And so the structure and, and uh, mechanisms of institutions have been underestimated. At one level, I don't disagree with that, but what it seemed to me important to understand was that institutions are not isolated from broader social conflicts mm -hmm. and in fact often they're reflecting these and, and the whole point of inst what institutions uh, tend to uh, involve then is they become sites in which the, the extent to which formal political processes can engage in conflict on A, B or C gets fought over and a lot of constitutions, a lot of uh, the manipulation or the design of institutions is really about trying to control or open up, as the case may be, the terrain of formal politics and what is permissible conflict and what is, you know, just constitutionally not possible. So that's what I've been doing, both formally and informally, and it's been inspired by the... Uh, it's still consistent with political economy because the underlying assumption here is that these institutions exist in a political economy context. And capitalism is a dynamic process that involves social transformations and economic transformations. But where it's going is not predetermined. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of people don't take you know, Marxist uh, theory seriously and they caricature it. In many cases, people have got the, the most vociferous denunciations of it have never read it quite clearly. Whereas in, when you're in my position, you've got to read all of the other literature because yeah. that's hegemonic. Uh, so it's quite yeah. frustrating that people... Uh, we know them and they don't know us. Exactly, this is it. But they claim to. Uh, so I, well, I, I, I... There's always contingencies that uh, you know, everybody, every serious mm. scholar recognises, but you need some systematic theory about these con mm. contingencies. And I think that's where political economy, when it integrates uh, theory about... What are the structural factors that are that are creating pressures for conflict, and mm -hmm. what is the nature of that conflict? Because mm -hmm. it's very different from one capitalist society to another for a whole host of historical and other reasons. And how when how these conflicts get played out, what alliances are formed, uh, and and what are the battle lines, has to incorporate some aspect of ideology, if only for the tactical role that it, it is playing. But I think what's been, you know, my big, the area I've tried to make most contribution in is to try and explain how this is not simply uh, a struggle, some inexorable struggle for democracy, that there are preconditions that we can observe that are making it more likely than not, in some cases, that durable, albeit dynamic, forms of authoritarian rule may be much more likely to present the future in some places than some inevitable ultimate transition to a liberal democracy. And that's not a culturalist argument, which of course is the other uh, 
an influential position to try and counter expectations of liberal democracy. Uh, so you know, the sort of approach I'm using it does not rule out democratic change. It can help explain democratic change, uh, but it, all, it has the ability of also explaining why in some cases democratic change is going to be very difficult. Yeah. Or clarify what sort of alliances of interest might be necessary to advance that. Well, Gary, thank you very much. It was wonderful talking to you. And I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, that Frank will come back into the pod when his next book comes out. Do you think we can lure the old boy one more time into the centre circle? I think Frank's got one good major thesis left. In <laughs> and uh, sensory deprivation is not dead yet. <laughs>